Welcome to the Bridge to God's Word podcast with Carla Unseth, a linguistic consultant for missionaries working in Bible translation. We invite you to visit us at www.bridgetogodsword.org to learn more about Carla's ministry. Now, here's linguistic consultant Carla Unseth. Hi, and welcome to Building a Bridge to God's Word. This is Carla Unseth, and we are in a series right now working our way through the Bible to look at the themes and connections between the stories in the Bible. So really, the Bible is one narrative with one overarching theme, but a lot of times that gets lost in all the individual stories. We know the individual stories so well. So I wanted to look at this single storyline that unites the Bible. So we've talked about how the overarching theme of the Bible is, is God's restoration of humanity, that God created humans for his glory and to be in relationship with him, but that relationship was broken through sin. So the story of the Bible shows the story of how God is bringing humans back into relationship with him. In the last podcast, we talked about the beginning of that story, the creation and the fall and what happened to the world as a result. Evil multiplied and grew until it was so pervasive that the whole world had to be wiped out by the flood. So there was one thing that I didn't talk about in the last podcast, and I really wanted, as I was thinking about it, I wanted to go back and just say a quick word about it. And that is this story in Genesis 9, after the flood, where Noah gets drunk and he ends up laying in his tent naked and his son Ham comes in and sees him, and Noah ends up cursing actually not Ham, but Ham's son, Canaan. And this story has raised a lot of questions over the years. Why was Noah drunk and in his tent naked? Why did he? Why was what Ham did so bad that he ended up getting cursed? And why did Ham's son Canaan get cursed instead of Ham himself? And this story has actually led to one very negative misconception throughout the years, and that is the idea that black people are cursed as a result, that Ham's descendants moved to Africa and were became the darker-skinned peoples of the world, and as a result, that, that black people are cursed to be slaves. And this misconception led to or was a huge justification for for slavery in the United States. And it also was a huge justification for the Rwandan genocide. So you can see that this has had some hugely negative ramifications throughout history. So I actually grew up learning that Ham's descendants were Africans and not that this justifies slavery, but that it does explain slavery. But that's just not true. It, it neither justifies nor explains slavery. And the reason is that this curse, first of all, is not about race at all. There's no mention of race. And race has to be inferred and has been inferred by people. But that actually doesn't even work in itself because if you trace Ham's descendants, they don't become dark-skinned people. They don't become Africans. And actually, the curse is actually levied on Canaan. And Canaan lived in the Middle East. The Canaanites are a Middle Eastern tribe, actually, that the Israelites displaced when they took over the Promised Land. So 
I just thought it was important to say this because I want to be clear that the Bible doesn't justify slavery in any way. It doesn't justify slavery toward Africans or any other people group. The Bible does explain slavery. And that comes through what we've already talked about. That comes through sin. And it is because of the sinful nature of people we saw after the flood. All they did was evil all the time. And and that's what explains slavery. But if then if we turn back to the overall storyline of the Bible, God's mission, God's desire is to bring all people back to himself. And in fact, we're going to look in just a few minutes this time at the blessing that God gives to Abraham. And that blessing is worldwide. It's a blessing for all people. So God never decided to bless one race at the expense of another race. Instead, his blessing has always been worldwide. So I just wanted to touch on that in case any of you had the same confusion that I had growing up. But now we can get back to the story. So we've talked about how throughout the Old Testament, we see humanity's attempt to fix this sin problem, to fix the broken world that we live in, and it ultimately doesn't work. And we also see God's slow unfolding of his plan to reconcile people to himself. Really, that's the only way to fix the problem of this broken world is to reconcile people to God. So pre-flood, we saw humans trying to do it on their own. In the Tower of Babel, we saw humans banding together to try to fix the problem. And they were actually reasonably successful in that they built this huge tower. But God in his mercy saw that humans couldn't actually fix the problem. Banding together like this wouldn't actually fix the problem. They couldn't overcome sin and ultimately return to God by defying God. So in his mercy, he dispersed them. And now God begins to introduce his plan. So in Genesis 12, we're introduced to a certain man, Abram, who later becomes Abraham, and God gives him a promise. So Genesis 12, 1 through 3, records this promise, and it says, The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So here God is promising Abraham three things. It says, I will, you will go to the land that I will show you. So he's promising this land. I will make you into a great nation. So he's promising people that he will be a great nation. And then it also says, All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So he's promising a worldwide blessing through Abraham. And of course, this is going back to the promise that God made to Eve. He promised Eve that there would be someone who would crush Satan. And here we see it being narrowed down to this specific family, to Abraham's family. But it is still very general. Abram would be made into a great nation and they would have a country But the most important thing is that through Abraham, the world would be blessed. In other words, the son that God promised to Eve will come through Abraham's family. This son will be the one who restores humanity to relationship with God. 
So in chapter 15, this covenant is reaffirmed. Abraham asks God how it will happen, how he will become a great nation because he doesn't have any children. And God affirms his covenant through what seems to us like a strange ceremony. He has Abraham take several animals and cut them in half. And then God, in the form of a smoking fire pot, passes through the animal halves. So this seems weird to us, but it wasn't that weird to Abraham because in that culture, that type of blood covenant was a normal way that people would seal a treaty between two parties. Only usually both parties would walk between the animals. So here, God is saying that this covenant is unconditional. It's based solely on him. Abraham didn't have to go through those animal halves because it didn't matter what Abraham did. This covenant was based solely on God. But in this chapter, we also see something else. In chapter 15, verse 6, it says, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. So we see an unconditional covenant on the part of God, but we also see that the basis for human participation in this covenant was faith. Here, God is initiating the way that humans will return to relationship with him. It will be through faith. And what is faith? Faith is complete trust or confidence in someone. And in this case, that is God. So Abraham had to have complete trust and confidence in God. And that continues today. How do we participate in the promise God has given us? It is through complete trust and confidence in God. So it's on the basis of faith that we can understand some of the next things that happen in Abraham's life. Abraham does have a son. And just as a side note, a lot of things happen that we aren't actually going to talk about between God's promise and Isaac coming on the scene. But there comes a point where God tests Abraham's faith. Now, this is a story that's really resonated with me in my own faith journey. There have been a lot of times where I feel like God has asked me to give up something precious as an act of faith. And that's what happens in this story. I think it's something that a lot of people experience on their faith journey. So this story is important in that way to see those tests as tests of our faith. But the story is also interesting in that it is somewhat pivotal to the whole story of the Bible. We've seen both the introduction of the unconditional covenant and also the introduction of faith. And I think the way these fit together is that the covenant God, will, God makes will happen no matter what. But in order for Abraham to participate in that covenant, he has to show that his faith his trust and confidence in God is solid. So God asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. This is painful for Abraham on a personal level. I can't even imagine being asked to give up, not only to give up his son, but to, to cause him harm to this very son that he loves. But it's also painful on a covenant level, thinking about the storyline of the Bible, because this is the son of the promise. God promised a great nation and Isaac is the beginning of the fulfillment of that promise. So Abraham had to trust God that he would care for him on a personal level, but also that God would fulfill his covenant. 
So Hebrews 11, 17 through 18 describes it this way. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He received the promises, and yet he was offering his one and only son, the one to whom it had been said, your offspring will be called through Isaac. He considered God to be able even to raise someone from the dead. Therefore, he received him back, figuratively speaking. So Abraham did have this faith. He didn't know how it would work out. But he trusted that even if he followed through and killed Isaac, God could raise him from the dead. And I just think that the parallels here to Jesus are so amazing. There's so many parallels in this story. But we have Isaac, who's the son of promise. But he wasn't the true, he was, he was a son of the promise, but he wasn't the son of the promise. Jesus was the son of the promise. And Mary was promised that Jesus would be the Savior. The disciples believed that he was the Messiah. They were putting all of their faith in this promise, but God took him. He was sacrificed, and unlike Isaac, he was actually killed. Yet, God could raise him from the dead, and he did. So we see Isaac as a shadow of the true son of the promise that would truly fulfill the promise and bring people back into a relationship with God. So I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but I just love the parallel between these two stories. But as we move on and we see Isaac grow up and God reaffirms the covenant to him, in Genesis 26, 1 through 6, there was another famine in the land in, a, in addition to the one that had occurred in Abraham's time. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines at Gerar. The Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land that I tell you about. Stay in this land as an alien, and I will be with you and bless you. For I will give you all these lands and your offspring, and I will confirm the oath that I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky. I will give your offspring all these lands, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring. Because Abraham listened to me and kept my mandate, my commands, my statutes, and my instructions. So Isaac settled in Gerar. So you can see the promise being reaffirmed again for the land, for the great nation, and then all it says, all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring. So that blessing is reaffirmed. So Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And we learn another thing from the story of Jacob and Esau. And that is that God chooses those he will work through, not based on any merit of their own, but rather based on his all-knowing understanding of his plan. So he chooses Jacob rather than Esau. Though Jacob did not culturally deserve the blessing because he wasn't the firstborn, and he really didn't deserve it based on his character either. He wasn't a particularly good person. Just to make a side note here, I think this is one of the reasons it's really important to see the Bible as a complete story with one storyline. Often people come to the Bible thinking it's a book of morality where we can read about people and see how we're supposed to live. But that makes the Old Testament pretty startling because so often the characters are very far from paragons of virtue. <laughs> we need to see instead that in every story, we see humanity's ineffective attempts to restore the world from sin. 
And we see God leading us toward our need for him to do the restoration. Every story, every failure shows us that we aren't good enough. We need God to restore us. That is the only way to overcome this sin problem. So even these heroes, even our Bible heroes, can't live lives that rescue us from the effects of sin. We need someone greater to save us. So all that to say, God chooses Jacob. And then in Genesis 28, God reaffirms the same covenant to Jacob. And Jacob has a crazy life. (laughs) And part of that is that he has 12 sons by four different women, two are wives and two are servants. And of course, we know the story of one of his sons the best, and that is Joseph. So the two wives that Jacob married were Rachel and Leah. And Rachel was Jacob's favorite wife, but she was unable to have children for many years. So when Joseph finally came along, his father loved him more than any of his other brothers. And that, of course, did not bode well for family relationships. And Joseph's brothers ended up selling him to slave traders headed for Egypt. And there, Joseph eventually became ruler of Egypt, one of the highest rulers of Egypt, and through that was able to save his people from famine. So through this, the Israelites were preserved physically, but also spiritually. During their time in Egypt, they were being built up spiritually among a people that was not interested in spiritually influencing them. They put them in their own land and they kind of said, we don't really want to mix with you in any way. And so they gave them their own space. And this allowed the Israelites to grow in their beliefs and solidify their faith in God. So this move to Egypt was very significant, and it shows God's protection of his covenant. So he was protecting the Israelites as they grew and developed as a nation. But did you know that the promised son, this son who was promised to Eve and then to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, this promised Savior didn't actually come through Joseph's line? Instead, it came through the tribe of Judah. So we see once again that God does not choose the expected people. We would expect the son to come through the line of the wife who was loved. But instead, it came through the the line of Leah. Leah was the unloved wife. I actually never really realized this until reading the Jesus Storybook Bible to my daughter And I actually want to read to you just a paragraph from this Jesus Storybook Bible because I really like the way that they put it. So here's what it says. It says, no one loves me, Leah said. I'm too ugly. But God didn't think she was ugly. And when he saw that Leah was not loved and that no one wanted her, God chose her to love her specially, to give her a very important job. One day, God was going to rescue the whole world through Leah's family. So I just love that because it shows that it's based on God's love, not on our expectations of who should be chosen. And God gave a special gift to Leah that she was chosen and that the world would be rescued through her and through her son Judah. Now, Judah's another interesting choice because Judah was not the firstborn. He was the fourth son, her fourth son. And people do give some reasons that this might be. 
Um, Reuben, it says, dishonored his father's marriage bed. Simeon and Levi wiped out an entire tribe of people in revenge for their sister. So those are possible reasons, but I think it still shows that God doesn't choose those we expect. In order to show that our restoration to him must come through him, he chose those that we don't expect, that wouldn't normally be the right choice. So he chose the unloved wife and the fourth-born son. So that's where I'm going to leave you for now. And next time, we will start with the Israelites in Egypt. They all went to Egypt because of Joseph. And we're going to talk about Moses and the next step in God's covenant as he seeks to restore humanity to himself. But for now, what I hope you've seen through this is that God has a plan to restore humanity to relationship with him. This is what will ultimately bring restoration to the world, what will solve the sin problem. But it can and must only come through God. So God made an unconditional promise to Abraham to give him a great nation and land and that the world would be blessed through him. And God allows us to participate in this covenant by faith. And he often chooses unlikely people so that we can see that it's only through him that the world will be restored. So thanks for joining us, and I hope you'll join us again next time on Building a Bridge to God's Word.